1: This program exists because there is a battle going on for your mind. But my purpose here isn't to tell you what to think. My job is to encourage you to think as clearly and as independently as possible. Because truth isn't something that is handed to you by authority. It's something you and I have to be willing to go after ourselves. And I want you to be more sure at the end of the day that uh, you know who you are and what you stand for. Rather than just, you know, who or what you're against. So I invite you to pull up a chair and find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers and claim your heritage as a free individual. In fact, I'll even invite you to take it one step further beyond that and to make the difference you were born to make. My program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, hslammo.com, also the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, governyourincome.com, and solarpatriots.com. You'll find links to all of these in the show notes, which I have compiled for you, at the show.com Now, I know there's a lot of interest right now, a lot of eyes on the Kyle Rittenhouse case, and this is an interesting place to be, you know, as, as a nation, as a culture, as this trial has played out it's become increasingly clear that this is not just about uh, was Kyle Rittenhouse operating within the confines of the law when he allegedly you know murdered two individuals and grievously wounded a third there's been a lot of uh, pretty solid facts i think that have come out but watching how the media has portrayed this case from the very beginning has been an exercise in what it's like to live in a a time of almost pure propaganda. And and you think about this from the standpoint of, I mean, look, the media has been pretty left-leaning for a long time, but it was the Kenosha riots where that CNN reporter stood there in front of the burning rubble of buildings, you know, destroyed by rioters and arsonists. It said, well, these uh, fiery but mostly peaceful protests took place overnight. And this all stemmed from uh, the shooting of an individual who happened to be black, and presumably the protests were against uh, systemic racism in law enforcement. Now, considering that this was on the heels of a lot of uh, activism and a lot of rioting and other unrest that had popped up over the George Floyd death I'm thinking that's pretty dubious. Not that there isn't, you know, there there, there are some bad things out there, but uh, the accusation, well, you know, the police are all racist, and the system is what made them that way. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I do believe there's way too much police uh, brutality. But I'm not going to hang this on every individual officer and say, well, therefore, you know, if you're... It's the whole uh, ACAB, all cops are bastards mentality... I don't think that's true. I do think that as the power of the state grows, you're going to see abuse of that power. And, you know, there is no nice way to say this. The police represent the punitive priesthood of the state. They are considered, you know, sacred individuals and people who are statist in their thinking, you know, are the first ones to clamor for. If you so much as put a finger on a police officer or a police dog. Which we treat as if it were a human, you know, that is committing a heavy crime. It's it's the same idea that uh, for years held sway, you know, in 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 Britain, where an attack on one of the king's men is the same as an attack on the king himself. Except we don't have kings, or we're not supposed to have kings here in in America. Nonetheless, the media has uh, has been solidly against what happened with Kyle Rittenhouse. And, you know, I'm I'm not going to pretend that, uh, you know, this is a great thing. We ought to be giving high fives and chest bumps and cheering and everything. A friend pointed this out on Facebook the other day, and I I thought this was a well, uh, this was actually a well thought out observation that he made. And that is, why do people cheer when someone else is killed or maimed? Why would we consider that, you know, something worth cheering now, my friend happens to be, I believe he's a, uh, he's a therapist or a, a counselor of some, of some sort, maybe family counseling. But I think his heart is absolutely in the right place. What is it that causes us to cheer and to actually think that this is a great thing? Hey, you know, this is awesome. Kyle, come here, man. Let me buy you a drink, buddy. You know, the destruction of a human life is, is not something to cheer. And I say that with the understanding that, yes, there are evil, predatory people who are out there trying to inflict harm upon the innocent. And I believe that the, the best and sometimes the only way to stop them is for good individuals who are skilled at arms to, to use that force to negate that, uh, that attack. But it's a regrettable last resort, it's not cause for celebration. And maybe that makes me, you know, a, a big pacifist or a big pushover in, in your eyes. You know, so be it. All I'm saying is the worth of human souls is, is great. And when someone is crushed or destroyed or shot to death for the enormity of their misbehavior or their bad judgment, that's not cause to celebrate. Even when Saddam Hussein was swinging by his neck, you know, dying for for being a bad guy. Somehow that didn't translate, at least to me, it didn't translate into, well, you know, at least now the world's a better place and I'm a better person because that happened. Turns out our problems didn't go away, you know, when, when he happened to be deposed and then executed. So, here's what I'm getting at. There's been a lot of emotion on all sides of this Kyle Rittenhouse case. A verdict may be coming this week. Some folks are very, very nervous. I mean, they're bringing in, I think I I read 500 National Guard troops have been brought into Wisconsin. Just on the off chance that, you know, somebody might get out of hand. Like we've seen that happen before, right? It's kind of scary. And, And the crazy thing is the judge has indicated he's been getting threats. From different uh, individuals. And I don't know. Are they, you know, is it Antifa? I don't know. It's kind of fitting with what Antifa has been up to. Is it the is it BLM? Is it Black Lives Matter? Certainly not all of them have been, you know, agitating for, you know, if we don't get the verdict we want, we're gonna burn this place down. But some are. So I don't know, I don't know where the violence is likely to come from. I can tell you this. If Kyle Rittenhouse is convicted, and, and it looks at this point like the only thing he could be convicted of is maybe some lesser charges that the state's throwing at him, trying to get anything, anything to stick. See, see, we were right. We were we were right to, to prosecute this guy. But if he is convicted and sent to prison, there, there will be a lot of anger and a lot of heartburn on the part of the political right. On the other hand, if he is acquitted which is a very real possibility, there's going to be some real anger and heartburn on the part of the left. And and I'm I'm not trying to deepen that divide between left and right so much as I want to point out the media has thrown away its credibility even as the prosecution's case has collapsed. And the way that they are reporting on this, it's very clear that the media... And, and those who, uh, it's, it's, whose narrative it's trying to uphold, they're very frightened. If Kyle Rittenhouse is acquitted, then we will have seen that, uh, you know what? In some cases, it may be appropriate for an average citizen to pick up a rifle, in this case an AR-15, and to defend their community. I know there's a hair splitters. Well, Kyle wasn't strictly from Kenosha. He had to travel, you know, to get there. Okay. He has family who lives there, though. And we we don't quibble when people show up, you know, to help with hurricane relief or anything like that. The the Cajun Navy, nobody quibbles. You don't live around here. You got no right to come and help. So if there are rioters at the door, if they are burning businesses, if they're destroying neighborhoods, if they're threatening people, A not guilty verdict would affirm that there may be instances in which it is OK, and in fact it is necessary, to resist that riotous behavior with force. And that kind of shoots the whole narrative of, you know what, you can't trust citizens with guns. And all of those protesters, well, they were perfectly righteous in what they were doing, and nobody should be questioning them. It's going to make things a little bit harder for the violent communists out there rioting in the streets. And I guess that's why it's so important that this narrative has to be upheld. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the media's approach to this case and why they cannot be trusted in the least.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's dive
1: right in here. Got an article from the New York Post. This is from William A. Jacobson. This was published last week. Headline, the media framed Kyle Rittenhouse and won't come clean even after the prosecution's case falls apart. Now, let's let's walk through this, because I, I understand not everybody's going to agree. And I don't want to make it sound like, you know, I'm just out here pumping. Hey, we should all be wearing, you know, free Kyle T-shirts. But the facts in this case should be pretty straightforward. And I think it was made within the first uh, the first part of the prosecution laying out its case. You know, their their star witness flat out admitted that Rittenhouse did not shoot him until he, that being Gage uh, Grosskreutz, pointed his gun at Kyle Rittenhouse. Isn't it interesting? Not one person who didn't attack Kyle Rittenhouse was either shot or threatened with being shot. Not one. Funny how that works. William Jacobson says media malpractice has come full circle in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Kyle Rittenhouse's trial for the shooting deaths of two people and the wounding of another is nearing its end, with the jury expected to get the case soon. Now, the shootings took place as riots, arson, and looting shook Kenosha after police shot Jacob Blake on August 23rd of 2020. The violence fed off the nationwide riots and looting that followed the May death of George Floyd in Minneapolis police custody. From the start, the media misrepresented the Blake case and the ensuing riots. They portrayed Blake as an unarmed man who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, subjected to police brutality due to racism. But the truth was far different. After an intensive investigation, prosecutors declared Blake's shooting a justifiable use of force. The Federal Justice Department reached the same conclusion. Contrary to media portraits, Blake was armed with a knife and he was shot when he turned around in a slashing motion at a policeman within arm's reach. Now, while it wouldn't be fair to say the media coverage caused the Kenosha riots, the press downplayed the mayhem and the hysteria. As with the Black Lives Matter riots in Minneapolis and beyond, the mainstream media incessantly focused away from the violence despite nearly 20 related deaths and more than a billion dollars in damage. But perhaps the most notorious example is CNN reporter Omar Jimenez standing in front of burning buildings in Kenosha with the on-air chyron reading, fiery but mostly peaceful protests after police shooting. The phrase mostly peaceful is now a popular Internet meme used to mock distorted mainstream coverage. And it's happening once again with the Rittenhouse case, which was born in the Kenosha riots. From the media coverage leading up to the trial, one would think that uh, white House, that uh, Rittenhouse rather was a white supremacist militia member who traveled to Kenosha to shoot up peaceful protesters. But as has been widely documented, the case is going poorly for the prosecution. Mr. Jacobson says, well, I'm not predicting an outcome. Having followed the case carefully, I can say that Rittenhouse has a strong case for self-defense. One of the deceased, Joseph Rosenbaum, was clearly a violent person who had threatened to kill Rittenhouse, chased him down, and went to grab Rittenhouse's rifle when shot. The other dead man, Anthony Huber, was beating Rittenhouse with a skateboard in a swinging manner when shot. Gage Grosskreutz, who was wounded, admitted under cross-examination that he ran after Rittenhouse and closed the gap but denied that he was chasing him and that Rittenhouse only fired on him when Grosskreutz lowered his loaded Glock pistol to point directly at Rittenhouse from three feet away. Now, most of that evidence came out in the prosecution case. When the defense called him to testify, Rittenhouse stuck to the same story witnesses told. And with trial evidence inconsistent with the news narrative, there could have been a major media mea culpa. Instead, headlines and framing continue that that pre-trial narrative even if inconvenient facts appeared deep down in the articles. Now, as the editors who run these stories and draft the headlines know, many, if not most people, don't get far beyond the headlines and opening paragraphs. So NBC News breathlessly headlines news report about the prosecution's forensic pathologist testifying that Rosenbaum was in a horizontal position, suggesting the victim wasn't a threat when he was gunned down. It's not until the bottom of the article that NBC acknowledges the same expert testified the wound positioning was consistent with Rosenbaum diving toward Rittenhouse. Left out of the story was his testimony that gunpowder residue was consistent with Rosenbaum grabbing the muzzle of the gun when he was shot, just as Rittenhouse and witnesses said. Now, the headline highlight of Grosskreutz's testimony, according to a Daily Beast report, was that he tried to surrender to Rittenhouse. Similar misleading narratives frame the case at the New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, and elsewhere. I tried to surrender and he wouldn't accept it, so I had to point my pistol at him to get him to accept my surrender. <laughs> I mean, that's the logic that we're being asked to believe. William Jacobson says, <clears throat> reading only these pu- publications, it would be reasonable to believe the original story of Rittenhouse as a shooter run amok despite the trial testimony to the contrary. From the inception of the Blake shooting, to the riots now, and to the Rittenhouse trial, media malpractice has framed a Kenosha narrative completely divorced from reality. Now, I've got a couple quick suggestions to make here. One is that maybe this really isn't the most important thing for you and I to be focusing on. You know, as a commentator, I... I go through a lot of different material, and I try not to get, you know, stuck like a needle on a record, you know, just on COVID, 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 COVID. But there are some things that I feel are important enough to bring up. This is one of them. However, I'm going to suggest that if this this is the kind of story that that brings you undue anxiety or anger, or it kindles a rage inside you that makes you want to, you know, high-five people and give them chest bumps, Maybe it's time to turn your attention to other things that are of greater importance in your life. I'm not suggesting you're burying your head in the sand. You're just totally turning your back on reality. But I am going to suggest that uh, what we take in shapes the way that we see the world. Okay. You've heard the phrase garbage in garbage out. If you're taking in media hype constantly, it may not be doing the good that you think it is. Ah, oh, but I'm well-informed, Brian. I'm I'm looking at the world. I'm seeing things as they are. Unflinching. Look, I'm going to give you the example here. I used to have some friends who, um, I don't know why, they really had a, a thing about, you know, I'm very afraid of Islamic extremism. And so they would invite, they would post videos, the beheading videos. Here's Daniel Pearl getting his head sawed off. Here's, I can't remember, some of the other names. It's It's been a little while, but, you know, Here are these horrible ISIS videos or Al-Qaeda videos of people being executed. And they'd say, we need to watch this. We all need to take a good long look at this so that we can see the evil that we're trying to confront. And and I apologize, this is going to sound a little bit indelicate. But to, to my thinking, what they're trying to accomplish there is no different than a person who sits down and consumes pornography to try to get their romance going. Only in this case, these guys were trying to, you know, believe that they're the, they're the good guys. I'm watching these snuff films because that reminds me I'm a good guy and I'm going to go caress my guns for a little bit and you don't know, think about what a good guy would do. I'm going to be really blunt here. That is spiritual pornography. Feasting on that kind of horror does not do good for your soul. It'll harm you. And it does nothing to, to stop evil and it does nothing to advance the cause of good. If you're serious about being a person who's wielding good influence in the world, watching snuff films, just like watching pornography, is not going to make you that better person. So be careful what you feed your mind. And that means if I'm getting too close to the edge here and uh, you know what I'm sharing with you is making you afraid or it's, it's making you anxious, probably time to turn me off and take a break. I hate to say it, but
0: I can be guilty of it as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A
1: quick shout-out here for lifesavingfood.com. Kendall Whiting is one of the best human beings that I know, and this is his company, LifesavingFood.com. It is food storage, ready wise food. We're talking 25-year shelf life. Still a great selection to choose from, although, um, as we have noted in previous episodes, um, there, there there are some gaps, you know, in terms of the time it takes to fill orders now. This is all part of the supply chain woes that we've been hearing about. And, yes, there are even price increases that are starting to kick in. But I don't want that to dissuade you from thinking seriously about having food storage on hand for times of uncertainty, much like the times that we live in. Now, here's the kicker. You'll still find a great selection of food. This is very high-quality food and preparedness items, grab-and-go buckets, and you get a 25% discount if you use the coupon code HYDE, hide my last name, at checkout. Details are there at the website. All you have to do is click on the link in my show notes at com. Probably be worth your while, though, to take a look at what they have to offer. Consider whether this peace of mind matters to you, and then you act accordingly. So I am spending time this hour on the Kyle Rittenhouse case, and, and I apologize if, if this is just beating a dead horse for you. I do have a couple of interesting articles that I want to share here um, with, with kind of an insightful take on... The Rittenhouse Matter. Annie Holmquist is one of my favorite writers for intellectualtakeout.org, and she has a wonderful essay about Kyle Rittenhouse and the individual's choice to take the witness stand. I saw a lot of armchair quarterbacks, you know, saying, well, you know, it's really bad, you know, really dangerous to be on the witness stand because you're dealing with, you know, a seasoned prosecutor whose job, you know, part of his training is how to ask trick bag questions. To trip somebody up to create the necessary doubt that could uh, end up landing a person in prison for life, you know, in Kyle's case, if they answer something incorrectly. So for him to take the stand, you know, there was risk, but apparently he felt that it was worth the risk for him to be able to tell his side of the story. I want you to hear Annie Holmquist's take. She says, I've watched the Kyle Rittenhouse court proceedings this week with interest. Not only because they're a microcosm of the cultural struggle over basic constitutional rights, but also because they've turned into a fascinating legal drama. Who needs television shows like law and order <clears throat> when you have a judge continually hauling the prosecution to the woodshed for multiple instances of stepping over the accepted legal line. One of the most intense moments of the trial was Kyle's decision to take the witness stand. And in doing so, he waived his Fifth Amendment right not to be compelled to be a witness against himself. Now, Annie Holmquist points out, doing this is quite rare. And as various commentators noted, it often snatches defeat from the jaws of victory. So the fact that Kyle Rittenhouse chose to testify in his own trial shows that he and his team, his defense team, were either stupid or strongly convinced of the truth and soundness of their case. And she says, I tend to think that it's the latter. Rittenhouse, if you recall, was present during the August 2020 riots in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which erupted following the police shooting of Jacob Blake, who came after officers with a knife. The 17-year-old Rittenhouse helped clean up the city from rioting damage and offered his services to help protect the city. He later shot three people during another night of riots, Allegedly in self defense, killing two and wounding one. Rittenhouse began sobbing as he described that fatal night to the jury. Now, many noted he was exhibiting all the signs of post traumatic stress disorder during his recall, while others claimed his gasping sobs oh, it was just simply crocodile tears attempting to sway the jury his way. Now, if the sobs were genuine, it's likely that Rittenhouse was regretting his decision to testify at that point. So why did he? Author and former Time Magazine editor Whitaker Chambers shed some light on the issue. Now, Chambers was an American spy for the communists. Well, he was at one point. Roughly a decade after he left the Communist Party, the much-maligned Chambers testified in the high-profile Hiss case about communist infiltration in the American government. In his memoir, Witness, Chambers accounts why he endured the difficulties of testifying. So this is what Whitaker Chambers said. For I had begun to understand that to be a witness, in the sense in which I'm using the term, means ultimately just one thing. It means that a man is prepared to destroy himself, if necessary, to make his witness. A man does not wish to destroy himself. To the full degree in which he is strongest, that is to say, to the full degree of the force that makes it possible for him to bear witness at all, he desires not to destroy himself. To the degree that he is most human, that is to say, most weak, he shrinks from destroying himself. But to the degree that what he truly is and what he stands for are one, he must at some point tacitly consent in his own mind to destroy himself if that is necessary. And in part, <clears throat> that tacit consent is a simple necessity of the struggle. It is the witness's margin of maneuver. In no other way can he strip his soul of that dragging humanity that impeding love of life and its endearments, which must, uh, must otherwise entangle him at every step and distract him at last to failure. This is the point at which the witness is always most alone. End quote. So Annie Holmquist asks, is this same factor at work in the Rittenhouse case? Like Chambers, he likely knew the risks of testifying that he could destroy himself in doing so. But what if he, like Chambers, was so convicted or convinced rather of the truth of his case and his need to stand for right that he was willing to destroy himself if necessary in order to make that truth known? It's an interesting question. Annie Holmquist says, I can't know whether this was Rittenhouse's thought process in deciding to testify, nor can I tell what the outcome of his testimony will be in this trial. Regardless, she says, this idea of being a witness, of standing and speaking the truth of what we believe, no matter the cost, should inspire each of us. She says, the lines of good and evil are fast being drawn in our current society. And those who stand for truth and right will likely suffer for that stance. The question is, do you have the courage and stamina to stop shrinking from potential destruction, whether it's through cancellation or imprisonment or loss of wealth, in order to be a witness for that truth? That's a really powerful observation. And yeah, you don't have to be the one sitting there on the witness stand. You don't have to be the one on trial to understand. If you stand for something today, there's a very good chance you're going to pay a price for it. That's just the way that it is. I mean, a lot of people will be familiar with the the phrase opposition in all things. And opposition is a necessary part of life. I believe it's true. You cannot appreciate the joy of reunion without uh, experiencing as well and understanding the sorrow of separation from a loved one. But how committed are you to the truth, to be a witness for the truth? I mean, I know there have been a lot of conversations about, uh, you know, the vaccine mandates or, you know, why won't people, you know, get the get the shot? Actually, had somebody ask me the other day. Is this really the hill that you would choose to die on? And my answer is, you know, I didn't realize it, but apparently, yeah, this is perhaps the hill that I would choose to die on. And for people who tend to dismiss it as, well, that's just, you know, that's just arrogance or that's a political stunt. No, I tend to believe it's because at some level... I have realized that there is a part of my personal autonomy that is directly under attack by someone in power. Maybe lots of someone's in power. And rather than surrender, that last little inch of autonomy, easy as it would be to do, well, I'll just do it and then every you know everybody will quit bugging me and life will go back to normal. No, I can't do it. Well, what if they throw you out of your job? I still can't do it. This is the decision a lot of people are facing right now. And they're doing it willingly. I know, it's easy to second-guess people's motives, and I guess that's kind of the, that's our new national pastime, was what is their motive, you know, what what's in it for them? I mean, there are thousands of workers who are getting ready to walk away from their jobs or be fired from their jobs through no fault of their own other than they refuse to be bullied. They refuse to give up that last sliver of their personal autonomy. Are they being made to suffer for their decisions? Yes. And there are people taking joy in it. But if you're determined to stand for something, you've got to get used to taking the hits and continuing to stand firm. Why? Why? I don't know if I can explain that other than sometimes that is the right thing to do, even if you're standing all by
0: yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Quick
1: shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Hey, if you are lucky enough to be moving to the Beehive State, I mean anywhere in the Beehive State, these are the folks you need to talk to about getting your mortgage. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability and the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. Why would that matter? Well, let's just say, for instance, there's a lot of competition right now for every single home that comes on the market. So when you find the one that's right for you, that's not the time to say, well, let's start looking at getting the financing together. You've got to have it together right now if you want to make things happen. You can contact Heather Turner at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, Utah, stop by her offices at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. All right, finishing up this final segment of this hour, I want to talk a little bit about how the riots and the destruction caused across the country last year weren't quite the fiery but peaceful protests that our legacy media has claimed they are. But it also brings up the question, when is it appropriate to stand up for your community and not to cede the streets to violent communists? That's a question that Peter Diabroska seeks to answer. And he says, make no mistake about it, when these rioters whip themselves into a frenzy over the next dead criminal, and they will, we will once again be on our own. Peter Diabroska says an annoying number of commentators on the political right are insisting Kyle Rittenhouse shouldn't have been out in the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin, on the night of August 25th, 2020. Take the perennially, perennially wrong Quinn Hillier over at the Washington Examiner, for example. Quote, Rittenhouse is at clear moral fault for the two deaths. He went into Kenosha that night expecting trouble, and he grievously exacerbated the trouble he found. Don't cry, for Kenosha killer Kyle Rittenhouse. Now, Peter Diabruska says, to be fair to Hillier, <clears throat> publishing contrary opinions for rage clicks is his brand. It's what keeps him paid, thus contriving lame takes will forever be his lot in life. But, he says, keep in mind that Hillier and others like him are also card-carrying members of the well-regulated militia club. These are the constitutional conservative types who've managed to conserve nothing ever that we're talking about here. He says, it seems to me that Kenosha Kyle was simply exercising his Second Amendment rights without infringement, as strictly dictated by the Bill of Rights. Now, one could argue, well, he was legally too young to carry a weapon at the time of the shootings, a Class A misdemeanor in Wisconsin. But he says, I'm having trouble squaring the constitutional conservatives fawning adoration of the phrase shall not be infringed with their messaging on Rittenhouse. It just doesn't make any sense. By the way, he says Kenosha Kyle is not at clear moral fault for the two deaths unless people like Hillier are prepared to argue that the moral thing to do when faced with imminent death, as Kenosha Kyle clearly was, is to roll over and die. And let it be known for uh, the record that one of the communists, one of the dead communists, was a pedophile. The other was a domestic abuser. So while we're arguing morality, these two details ought to be included in the discussion. But he says, never mind that, though. There's a more basic point to be argued here. Nobody, especially not anyone on the political right, is required to cede the streets of their community to violent communists who intend to burn them to the ground. Kyle Rittenhouse and his friends had as much of a right to be out on those streets as the violent communists, as the reporters, as the casual observers, and as anyone else did. And he says people who claim otherwise might as well thumbtack an invitation on their foreheads for Antifa to come riot in their neighborhoods. Oh, and don't worry that the thumbtack might injure their frontal lobes, causing brain damage, as they clearly have no use for that organ anyway. He says if the authorities are unwilling to protect our livelihoods, our property, and our lives, it is our responsibility to step up and do it ourselves. Absent law enforcement to quell violent riots... The only outcome will be total leftist anarchy. If defending our community to ourselves or watching enraged, misfit delinquents take a torch to them are the only options, well, he says, then give me the 17-year-old with with the AR-15. I'd choose him every single time. If they so choose, the Washington think tankers and opinion columnists can let their businesses burn down. Except they don't have to worry about that they're busy pontificating on the internet about their or from their beltway cubicles their hands uncalloused from an honest day's work perhaps after more than a year of relative peace in the streets the pontificators have quite forgot have forgotten rather quite how violent the cities were in the summer of 2020 nobody in washington has ever been accused of having a long memory remember when the neoconservatives plunged us into the iraq war they sure don't So, this isn't the space to recap all the violence which is public record, but there was a lot of fighting, burning, smashing, breaking, looting, and even killing during the 2020 Summer of Love. There were autonomous zones where street thugs declared their city blocks sovereign from the United States. Now, that ought to have elicited at least some kind of response from federal law enforcement, if no one else, but it didn't. He says, make no mistake about it. When these rioters put themselves into a frenzy over the next dead criminal, and they will, we will once again be on our own. Now, do you think the Biden administration is going to do anything to stop them? Or the FBI that has all but deputized these black-clad Marxists to be their soldiers in that agency's war on the right? Of course not. Joe Biden doesn't know what planet he's on. And the FBI hates you. Now, Peter Diabroska says, look, local law enforcement, I'm sad to say, will likely be just as worthless. The people in charge of these contentious cities and suburbs are nearly always Democrats ready to give a stand down order to local police at a moment's notice. He says whether Kyle Rittenhouse is acquitted and he should be doesn't matter. Don't turn your community over to the mob. Now, I get it. Some people may be thinking, Brian, are you trying to gin up? a mob by suggesting that the average person ought to be willing to step out into the street and, and defend their neighborhood or defend their community if necessary. And I don't know if that if that sounds like, well, gee, yeah, you're ginning up a mob. All right. Then maybe, maybe that's what I'm doing. But I think it goes a little bit further than just simply, Hey, everybody, let's go have a lynching. I think it comes down to people who care about their communities and I'm not talking about just conservative people, I'm talking about people who recognize that the lawlessness, the destruction of property, the threats to human life cannot simply be ignored and if the If the people in authority are telling you, "Well, there's nothing we can do about it, you know and this this was the case in many of these big cities. Police were told to stand down or at least told to stand by as these black clad, you know, militants were out there, you know, causing mayhem. Look, I'm not a young man anymore. Never was really a high speed, low drag kind of guy. But I think that uh, if you, if you, if there are things that you value enough that you would stand up and possibly even put your life on the line to defend them, then I think the answer has to be, yes, there is an appropriate time for the common citizen to stand up and defend their community. Truth be told, I think that's really what the text of the Second Amendment is referring to. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I know people hear that word regulated. Ah, well, see, they need more laws and more oversight. now. Break out your Webster's 1828 dictionary so you can have a better understanding. That word regulated also can refer to well-trained, but it was the common citizen. That's why it says the right of the people, not the right of the community, not the right of the state, not the right of the collective. The right of the people, as an in individual people, to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. For some people, that's a matter of conscience. It's like, look, I could never do that. I could never, I would, I would rather die than inflict harm on someone who's trying to harm me or my family. And if that's what your conscience tells you, I'm not going to tell you, well, then, you know, you're a bad person. More power to you. I hope to become the kind of person who has that sort of faith and strength that I would be willing to just, you know, suffer whatever, you know, my enemies would do. But as long as I have people depending on me, I feel like I have a responsibility to God to protect them. And that doesn't mean I get to go out and be the aggressor. I'm not looking for that. But I definitely think there are some things that uh, we should be willing to defend even to bloodshed. And if you've never thought that thing through and thought to yourself, what might that include? Maybe it's time to have a little contemplation about what that could mean. I do agree with
0: Mr. Diabroska, though. Don't surrender your community to the thugs. Just don't. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show.
1: This program is here not to tell you what to think, but to invite you to think more clearly and more independently about whatever it is that's going on in front of you. That means that uh, even though I share a lot of different thoughts and opinions in the course of a program, you are not duty-bound to accept or agree with any of them. Although I hope they find, I hope that they, they give you a little bit of a, a nudge to think a little harder about certain things. Uh, man, we have our work cut out for us when it comes to making sense of the world around us. But at the end of the day, it really should come down to knowing more about who and what you are and what you stand for than simply, you know, who or what you're against. So hopefully that's the direction I'll be uh, taking you throughout this hour. Our show is brought to you by great sponsors like SolarPatriots.com, GovernYourIncome.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. This is a wonderful family-owned business. Been around for a long time. Now owned by Teresa and Eric Alsop and their family. If you are, uh, in, If you have any interest whatsoever in sewing... And this is really this is a huge market. If you, if you know people who are into sewing or quilting, you understand what I'm talking about. This this is more than just oh yeah, it's a little you know casual hobby. I mean, people really are wonderful at this. Take take a look next time the county fair is going on. Look at some of the entries. Anyway, glad to have them as sponsors. Also, HSLammo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in Saint George, Utah, LifesavingFood.com, and Monticello College. Dot org. Well, let's jump right in. You know, <clears throat> it's no secret that cattle ranchers and farmers have been under attack by animal rights and environmental groups for a long time. I actually attended a workshop in uh, Modesto, California. I think it was three years ago. Ammon Bundy came and spoke and it was uh, it was a remarkable meeting of food producers and people who have have been very closely studying all the different policies that affect agriculture and what made it a great meeting was first of all there were a lot of really great people and there was just a, a huge amount of information to help you better understand what it takes to get food from the farm to your plate but what was also really interesting was there was a very rabid environmental group, and I can't even remember their name. I guess I wouldn't want to give them props even if I could. But this this extremely rabid environmental group found out that Amon Bundy would be one of the featured speakers, and boy, they showed up in in mass with you know bullhorns and just out there trying to provoke people and chanting, and it was uh, it was kind of neat in the sense that uh, you don't get that kind of a response unless you're having impact. So, kudos to Ammon for, you know, for having that kind of impact, and a kudos to the people who showed up and, and still heard the messages from these producers and these agricultural uh, titans. Well, now that you see your food prices are getting higher and higher, maybe it's a good time to ask if animal rights extremists are transforming agriculture in America's heartland. Mindy Patterson has an excellent article on AmericanThinker.com. dot com. She says cattle ranchers and other meat producers have been under fire by animal rights activists and environmental groups for years, and it's nothing new. But under the current Biden administration, the agenda to halt meat production under the premise of a climate crisis has accelerated to a mind numbing pace. With food prices already increasing due to high fuel costs, the never-ending nudge by animal rights organizations to increase extraneous animal welfare regulations has taken on a new foothold and strategy to advance animal rights organizations' vegan agenda. And while these regulations may seem reasonable on the surface, the agenda behind them lies within the organizations pushing these deceptive bills cloaked in emotionally charged propaganda used to advance these proposed regulations into law. Now, one such organization is the Humane Society of the United States, an organization that makes no bones about its mission to push anti-animal agriculture regulations and stiff regulatory reform on American farmers and ranchers. Just consider the Humane Society's senior policy advisor and vegan activist J.P. Goodwin who's gone on record saying, My goal is the abolition of all animal agriculture. Mindy Patterson says people are finally waking up to the deceptive policies driven by animal rights groups mandating extraneous regulatory changes to animal agriculture, such as California Proposition 12, which has produced a pork shortage in the Golden State. Maine recently passed Right to Food, a constitutional amendment that protects Maine citizens' unalienable right to food of their choosing and protects farmers and ranchers in Maine against future animal rights-driven policies to abolish animal agriculture. Now, she says the animal rights movement is a line of thinking that has gradually gained a foothold in public schools, universities, and governments throughout the last 50 years. What was once considered a ragtag group of extremists, is now a multi-million dollar coalition of non-governmental organizations that raise money under the guise of running pet shelters, but ultimately spend the money on the promotion of increased regulation on animal ownership, animal enterprise, and animal agriculture. Namely, these organizations are the Humane Society of the United States, Humane Society Legislative Fund, and the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals and also people for the ethical treatment of animals. The end goal of these groups and their subsidiary affiliates is for all pets to be adopted from shelters and the consumption of meat to be prohibitively expensive for most Americans. Now, These organizations pursue their radical agenda in a number of ways. The first is by consistently targeting for defeat any pro-agriculture members of Congress, state legislators, city council members, county commissioners. The second is through direct lobbying of government entities. And one example of this is recent action that took place in Kansas. Just last month, Kansas Governor Laura Kelly appointed two new members to the Kansas Pet Animal Advisory Board, who just happened to be aligned with the Humane Society of the United States. Crystal Swan Black Deer and Kelly Bogner now have a seat at the table in the Kansas Department of Agriculture's Pet Animal Advisory Board, which is akin to allowing a fox in the henhouse. Now, Mindy Patterson says that's an an interesting maneuver by Governor Kelly, considering her motion last spring to appropriate $500,000 from state coffers to the animal facilities inspection program. And there were concerns and speculation that the 500,000 originated from the Humane Society of the U.S., their lobbying affiliate Humane Society Legislative Fund, or another affiliate animal rights group. Deliberately placing two new members on the Kansas Department of Agriculture's Pet Animal Advisory Board who are active with state and national animal rights organizations, in addition to the questionable source of $500,000 earmarked for Kansas's Animal Facility Inspection Program, has become a major point of contention among the Kansas Department of Agriculture's employees. Now, there are KDA employees who verified this information but were pressured to keep quiet and who are unwilling to comment and where this all circles back to kansas animal agriculture and meat producers is the connection that the two new animal advisory members have to have two kansas animal based kansas based animal rights organizations with ties to anti-animal agriculture animal rights extremist organizations hslf hsus and several cell based fake meat companies Okay, I admit, that's uh, it does seem like uh, that influence was uh, purchased, to put it mildly. So, straydogpolicy.org, based in Kansas, is a direct affiliate of the Humane Society Legislative Fund. It states right on its website that its mission is to influence policy impacting animals and animal-related businesses, including animal agriculture by lobbying in state legislators, legislatures rather, and supporting lawmakers who are committed to its animal rights agenda in Kansas, Iowa, and Missouri. Based in Washington, D.C., a 501c3 nonprofit organization is the Good Food Institute, founded in 2016 by radical animal rights group Mercy for Animals and Bruce Friedrich, a former employee of PETA and Farm Sanctuary. Now, the Good Food Institute works to promote and advance plant and cell-based meat, dairy and egg alternatives by engaging policymakers. Chuck Lau, the founder of Stray Dog Policy and Stray Dog Capital, is on the advisory council of the Good Food Institute. So these are just a couple of the dots that Mindy Patterson is connecting. i got to pump the brakes here because we're up against our own commercial break. But when we come back, we'll revisit her article and, again, ask the question, is it possible? that animal rights extremists are transforming agriculture in the American heartland. And what does that mean for the larger future of animal agriculture? As a very dedicated barbecue aficionado, see, stuff like this matters.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to
1: the show. Sharing an article here from Mindy Patterson. This is from AmericanThinker.com. Are animal rights extremists transforming agriculture in America's heartland? Why should this matter to you? Well, go buy a steak and then come back and talk to me. Because uh, you will find that, uh, yes, they are having some great influence on policies and food prices are going up and... It's interesting, as she points out some of the problems in the state of Kansas, how some of these groups are interconnected and now wielding incredible influence. There's another group that uh, she points out, another, uh, another organization called uh, uh, Glasswall Syndicate. Now, previously, she had talked about uh, Stray Dog Policy, Good Food Institute. Now, Stray Dog Policy's co-founders, Chuck and Jennifer Lau, are actively involved in its mission to cultivate dignity, justice, and sustainability in the food system. Glasswall Syndicate is a group of venture capitalists, foundations, trusts, nonprofits, and individual investors whose common goal is to combat climate change and advance plant and cell based meat. Its partnerships include the Humane Society of the United States, Good Food Institute, Mercy for Animals, New Harvest, and Plant Based Solutions. So with advisors on deck from the Humane Society of the United States who've promised to end animal agriculture, she says we find this all extremely alarming. With the Humane Society's animal abolition platform as the motivation behind every piece of legislation it works to pass, it's a short jump to see that these organizations are inserting themselves into regulatory agencies that have intent to modify the behavior of the bureaucrats what would normally be a conflict of interest is being rewarded. See, this reminds me of what happened to so many cattle ranchers, including Cliven Bundy. Why did Cliven end up being at odds with the uh, BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, not Black Lives Matter? Why was he at odds with them going back to 1993? And the answer is the BLM, a federal regulatory agency, found itself under the thrall of extreme environmentalist groups. And so when the BLM said, hey, Cliven, we're going to have to uh, limit the amount of cattle you can run out there on on your, uh, your grazing allotment, the reason they were doing so wasn't because, you know, these cattle are destroying the land. It was ostensibly these cattle are making it hard for the desert tortoise to exist out there. Now, this is completely false. The desert tortoise actually thrives out there. In fact, the desert tortoise, you know, can, can eat the manure from those cattle that are out there on the range. And it's, it doesn't hurt them. It doesn't hurt anything. But the point is, extremist groups finding their way into regulatory agencies or wielding influence over those regulatory agencies is what set the stage for what we saw happen in 2014 where the BLM came in once and for all to show Cliven Bundy, who was boss, to kick in their teeth if they needed to and take away his cattle because he wasn't going to play the game of allowing his grazing rights to be converted into a renewable privilege as opposed to an absolute enforceable right to the water and forage on that land. Cliven never claimed to own the land that he was grazing on. He never claimed that he was the only one who had the right to be on that land. But he was absolutely claiming those rights, which dated clear back to 1877, duly recorded right there in the county records that they had been claimed, used and defended right up until the day that they were in his hands. And he continued to claim them, use them and defend them, as well as building, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of infrastructure, watering ponds, irrigation systems and so forth out there on that grazing allotment. Sorry, I'm rehashing a little bit of the the Bundy trial from four years ago, but again, it's the same thing. Environmental radicals were the ones pushing the hardest to get the Bundys put away, as well as to stop others from ranching. And I can say with absolute certainty, because I saw it with my own eyes, ain't nobody hates the Bundys worse than those radical environmental groups. Oh my goodness! And and just looking at the press corps that showed up to cover that trial, there were there were definitely you know, high country news among others that, you know, they they sent their best reporters. The Southern Poverty Law Center, you know, they're going to talk about the hate groups and whatnot. It was a very interesting place to be. In fact, the most most interesting elevator ride of my life was uh, after the after the trial had concluded one day, I uh, just happened to jump into the elevator with about six or seven of these journalists, I'm putting this into uh, quotation marks, who uh, were for all of these uh, various uh, lobbying groups and, and extreme groups that were there united against the Bundys. And they knew darn well that I was there as kind of a spokesman for the Bundy family and doing social media updates and whatnot. So it, they knew who I was, but... It was just interesting. You know, everybody's chatting out in the hall. Everybody's friendly. Man, we got in. (laughs) We stepped into that elevator, or I should say I stepped into that elevator. Conversation comes to a complete stop. And it was dead silence. Like you could hear a pin drop silence for seven floors down. I was laughing as I walked out of the elevator because it was just like, wow. That really made them uncomfortable. They, they clearly did not feel like uh, we can speak freely in front of Brian. He's one of us. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. And, and I, I probably never will be. But, uh, you know, decent people on an individual basis, but attached to a really ugly and just power-hungry kind of agenda. And I'm talking the kind of agenda that sees absolutely no problem with destroying people, either legally or just destroying their reputations in the quest for more and more control. So why should you care about this? Why should you care about, uh, you know, what uh, different activists are doing in the realm of agriculture? Well, I'm assuming that you like to eat at least once a day, maybe up to three times a day, maybe more, I don't know. But if you're a person who needs to eat, You need to be very careful about the kind of regulatory influence that is being exercised and control that's being exercised over agriculture. All that food that appears on those uh, store shelves, it doesn't appear there by magic. There aren't sorcerers who have ways of making these things come into reality, you know, out of of nothing. This is the first year that I have uh, lived actually out in a very rural area like surrounded by fields and had the opportunity to watch the harvest come and go start to finish. And I've been extremely impressed at the incredible amount of hard work and effort that it takes not only to, to harvest the crops and get them, you know, trucked off to, to uh, where the, you know, the trains can, can haul them off to the sugar factory, you know, the sugar beets or corn or whatever the silage I this is the first time I've actually seen what it takes to grow those crops and to bring them to fruition. Suffice it to say, I'm, I'm very impressed and, and very humbled by the amount of work that goes into feeding people. And I'm just in one little corner of America. But it's a very agriculturally based corner. And I suppose this probably hits home to me, and one of the reasons I brought it up, this this article caught my eye. Uh, my daughter is involved in 4-H. She's She and uh, her siblings have raised sheep. They've raised goats before, and it's been a great experience. This year, she is stepping up to raise a steer. And I just reflected as I was sitting there looking, looking to the people uh, who would be providing the steer and helping my daughter pick out hers, uh, These are the salt of the earth people. These are the people I want to be associated with. Because they're doing something that's not just putting money in their pockets, but it's also benefiting humanity at a number of different levels. But particularly those of us who love a good steak. (laughs) Yeah, it's benefiting us too. Well, I got a link to the article. You can check it out in the show notes. When we come back, Got some uh, great excerpts from the Fifth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals decision or their judgment staying the vaccine mandates on the part of the Biden administration. Stick around,
0: that's on the way next. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a reminder that if you
1: visit my website, BrianHideshow.com, one of the things you can do that'll make things so easy for you is just to subscribe, and I will send a copy of my show notes each day that I do the show. Right to your email inbox. It's very low key. I'm not going to spam you. I'm not gonna. I'm not going to use your information to sell to other you know advertisers. I just want to make this information available. Because I know there are people out there like you who are looking for uh, just a solid take on the world. And, you know, this may sound like a real cop-out of, well, you know, what I do for a living is I try to find the best possible information, meaning the most principle-based information that I can, the least partisan information that I can, and share that for the purpose of providing perspective that will help you better understand what's going on as well as what you can do about it. So with, with that in mind, the Brownstone Institute is one of those great resources for wrong thinkers that I would encourage you to visit on a regular basis, sign up for their email updates. The sweeping VAX mandates that the Biden administration is attempting to impose on the workforce, it's hard to state how much of a massive departure This is from the legitimate role of government, which for those who've forgotten, government exists to keep us free by protecting our natural rights. And when it starts to look for backdoor ways to force people or coerce people into participating in a medical procedure that they may or may not want, it's out of line. So the Brownstone Institute has compiled some of the key excerpts from the Fifth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals recent judgment, highlighting just a few of the reasons that these mandates are not only unwise, but also unnecessary. The article starts by noting that a federal appeals court in New Orleans has stopped the vaccination and testing requirement for private businesses as ordered by the Biden administration and the Labor Department's Regulatory Division for Workplace Safety. Now, the decision is notable not only for its decisive judgment, but also for its striking language that properly frames the draconian edict for what it is and decries in pointed language the goal and methods being deployed against workers. So these are excerpts from the decision in BST Holdings, LLC versus OSHA, November 12th, 2021. This one says, we begin by stating the obvious. The Occupational Safety and Health Act, which created OSHA, was enacted by Congress to assure Americans safe and healthful working conditions and to preserve our human resources. Now, it was not and likely could not be under the Commerce Clause and Non-Delegation Doctrine intended to authorize a workplace safety administration in the deep recesses of the federal bureaucracy, to make sweeping pronouncements on matters of public health affecting every member of society in the profoundest of ways. On the dubious assumption that the mandate does pass constitutional muster, which we need not decide today, it is nonetheless fatally flawed on its own terms. Indeed, the mandate's strained prescriptions combine to make it the rare government pronouncement that is both over-inclusive... Applying to employers and employees in virtually all industries and workplaces in America with little attempt to account for the obvious differences between risks facing, say, a security guard on a lonely night shift and a meat packer working shoulder to shoulder in a cramped warehouse. And under-inclusive, purporting to save employees with 99 or more co-workers from a grave danger in the workplace, while making no attempt to shield employees with 98 or fewer co-workers from the very same threat. The mandate's stated impetus, a purported emergency that the entire globe has now endured for nearly two years, and which OSHA itself spent nearly two months responding to, is unavailing as well. And its promulgation grossly exceeds OSHA's statutory authority. The president voiced his displeasure with the country's vaccination rate in September. The administration poured over the U.S. code in search of authority or a workaround for imposing a national vaccine mandate. The vehicle it landed on was an OSHA ETS. The statute empowering OSHA allows OSHA to bypass typical notice and comment proceedings for six months by providing for an emergency temporary standard to take immediate effect upon publication in the Federal Register if, it determines, A, that employees are exposed to grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful or from new hazards, and B, that such emergency standard is necessary to protect employees from such danger. Here, OSHA's attempt to shoehorn an airborne virus that is both widely present in society and thus not particular to any workplace and non-life-threatening to a vast majority of employees into a neighboring phrase connoting toxicity and poisonousness is yet another transparent stretch. I mean, there's a lot of legalese here, but uh, doesn't this make some pretty good sense? The ruling also says, equally problematic, however, is that it remains unclear that COVID-19, however tragic and devastating the pandemic has been, poses the kind of grave danger that this order contemplates. Or actually, this subsection of of U.S. Code contemplates, rather. Uh, C, for instance, international chemical workers... Anyway, 830F2D at 371, noting that OSHA itself once concluded that to be a grave danger, it is not sufficient that a chemical such as cadmium may cause cancer or kidney damage at a high level of exposure. For starters... The mandate itself concedes that the effects of COVID may range from mild to critical. As important, however, the status of the spread of the virus has varied since the president announced the general parameters of the mandate in September. And, of course, this all assumes that COVID-19 poses any significant danger to workers to begin with. For the more than 78% of Americans aged 12 and older either fully or partially inoculated against it, the virus poses, the administration assures us, Little risk at all. Isn't that something? And it, it talks here about, uh, it, it refers you to, again, different parts of the federal register and says COVID-19 vaccines authorized or approved by the FDA effectively protect vaccinated individuals against severe illness or death from COVID-19. I know that's the claim, but I have to ask, does that match the reality? They go on to say, we next consider the necessity of the mandate. The mandate is staggeringly overbroad. Applying to two out of three private sector employees in America in workplaces as diverse as the country itself, the mandate fails to consider what is perhaps the most salient fact of all. The ongoing threat of COVID-19 is more dangerous to some employees than to other employees. All else equal, a 28-year-old trucker spending the bulk of his workday in the solitude of his cab is less vulnerable to COVID-19 than a 62-year-old prison janitor. Likewise, a naturally immune unvaccinated worker is presumably at less risk than an unvaccinated worker who has never had the virus. Now, the list goes on, but one constant remains. The mandate fails almost completely to address or even respond to much of this reality and common sense. Moreover, earlier in the pandemic, the agency recognized the practical impossibility of tailoring an effective ETS in response to COVID-19 At the same time the mandate is also underinclusive the most vulnerable worker in America draws no protection from the mandate if his company employs 99 workers or fewer The reason why because even as OSHA admits companies of 100 or more employees will be better able to administer and sustain the mandate OSHA seeks information about the availability of employers with fewer than 100 employees to implement COVID-19 vaccination and testing programs. Now, that may be true, but this kind of thinking belies the premise that any of this is truly an emergency. Indeed, under-inclusiveness of this sort is often regarded as a telltale sign that the government's interest in enacting a liberty-restraining pronouncement is, in fact, not compelling. The underinclusive nature of the mandate implies that the mandate's true purpose is not to enhance workplace safety, but instead to ramp up vaccine uptake by any means necessary. Now, here's where I'm going to step back and I'm going to just point out, I believe the Canadian government, or at least a, a Canadian health official, admitted as much just recently. I'm trying to remember, I think it was Tom Woods who pointed this out. Yeah, it's authorities in Canada just admitted what you and I knew. The aim of the vaccine mandates is, and in this case, they're talking vaccine passports, is not to control the spread of the virus. It's to punish the unvaccinated. I mean, these are the words of the British Columbia Parks and Recreation Department. Remember, the purpose of the POV, that's their vaccine pass passport card, the purpose of the card is to incentivize residents to be vaccinated, not to control the spread of the virus. They further go on to say, this is an important shift to keep aware of for your decision making. The province has shifted from actions that provide a COVID-safe environment to actions that provide discretionary services to the vaccinated. Well, there you have it. It's about forcing you to do what somebody else wants you to do. It's not about protecting you. You can find this uh, article that I was referencing from the Brownstone Institute in today's show notes at thebryanhideshow.com.
0: is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I don't know if you're one of those people who find yourself
1: in the position where you're going to have to choose between your job or getting the jab. But if you are very serious about uh, governing your income, in other words, taking control, not being at the whim of an employer or anybody else to tell you, yes, you can work here, but only if you do what, you know, if President Biden wants you to do, then you should really take a closer look at GovernYourIncome.com. Go to the website. It's There's a lot of information there. In a nutshell, what this is talking about is day trading on the foreign currency exchange. Now, that's not for everybody. But for someone who is very serious about uh, that independence where you can work from anywhere that you have internet, you can set your own hours, you can be your own boss, this is the kind of program, and it's, it's, it's a company that will not only train you with how to do that day trading, and do it right. But they'll actually give you company money to work with to help start building your capital and building your ability to, to really make a great living. You'll find a link in my sponsor notes, or my sponsor links in my show notes at the thebrianheidshow.com. And again, I want to emphasize the Brownstone Institute article that I was sharing in the last segment. This is key excerpts from the Fifth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals recent judgment staying the president's uh, vaccine mandates. And I just let me give you two quick things here. This uh, among the notes, it says it is clear that a denial of the petition of the petitioners proposed stay on these mandate orders would do them irreparable harm for one. The mandate threatens to substantially burden the liberty interests of the reluctant individual recipients put to a choice between their jobs and their jabs. For the individual petitioners, the loss of constitutional freedoms for even minimal periods of time unquestionably constitutes irreparable injury. So for similar reasons, a stay is firmly in the public interest. From economic uncertainty to workplace strife, the mere specter of the mandate has contributed to untold economic upheaval in recent months. Now, of course, the principles at stake when it comes to the mandate are not reducible to dollars and cents. The public interest is also served by maintaining our constitutional structure and maintaining the liberty of individuals to make intensely personal decisions according to their own convictions, even or perhaps particularly when those decisions frustrate government officials. Bam! In addition, it is further ordered that OSHA take no steps to implement or enforce the mandate until further court order. Pretty cool stuff. I'm grateful that there was a court that stood up and at least put the brakes on this. I don't know if it's going to stay. I mean, there are plenty of judges out there who are more than happy to, you know, engage in judicial activism. And and there would be those who say, well, Brian, that's exactly what this is, judicial activism. But again, I would point you to the idea Government is limited for a reason. Do you know what that reason is? It's to prevent it from being used as a tool for furthering mischief on the part of power seekers and opportunists. One of the reasons the courts review various policies and laws is to make sure that somebody isn't gaming the system. That government isn't straying from its intended role. Now the fact that some have figured out how to game the justice system or to game the court system itself does not negate the fact that original intent was that the government exists for the purpose of securing and guaranteeing our inalienable rights. I was going to say God-given, inalienable, natural rights. It's the same thing. So I'm glad that somebody stood up. I wish it were the norm, but clearly it's not. And it's it's definitely something that we're going to see continuing to play out in the days ahead. Now, I'm going to shift gears to something that is going to make some people uncomfortable. And I, I guess I should apologize in advance, but I have never seen a situation where someone says, wow, did you realize the parallels between pre-Nazi Germany and uh, modern America are real? If you've ever read Milton Meyer's book, They Thought They Were Free, the Germans, 1933 to 45." It spells it out in, in, and it's not an anti-American screed. It just spells it out in the words of the Germans themselves. How did their society be be, uh, transformed from a first world republic into a goose-stepping dictatorship that brought ruin upon itself and millions of others? It's not just a matter of authoritarian attitudes, okay? It's not that, yeah, we're all turning into Nazis here. The parallels that you will find between Weimar Germany and modern America are most clear in how each society made a conscious decision to abandon their moral foundations. So I'm going to invite you, brace yourself and learn why. I have a link to historycollection.com, 17 Reasons Why Germany's Weimar Republic was a party lover's paradise. By the way, you'll find it very interesting. The photograph that um, accompanies this article from D.G. Hewitt shows—I uh, the, assume these are German. Uh, these are German men. They're definitely men dressed in drag, dancing with one another. It's an old, grainy, black and white photo, but uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty clear. These folks was woke. <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about this. If you can endure a little bit of discomfort, I'll let you discover it on your own, but Germany emerged from the First World War broken and disillusioned, says D.G. Hewitt. Defeat in the Great War heralded the end of the monarchy with the Kaiser giving way to the Weimar Republic, named after the small German city that had once been a hotbed of both artistic and scientific progress. Before long, American money was pouring into the new-look country and people weren't afraid to spend it. Whether they wanted to, whether because they simply wanted to forget the trauma of the war or because they realized that such peace and relative prosperity was bound to come to an end sooner than later, the German people partied hard. Indeed, from 1923 on, the golden age of the Weimar Republic was characterized by its decadent parties as much as it was for its economic troubles and weak governments. The cabaret scene of 1920s Berlin is still famous to this day. Here in dance halls and cabaret clubs, the old rules were tossed aside. Prussian conservatism gave way to sexual liberation, equality, and hedonism. Gender rules were not just bent, but smashed altogether. Indeed, some of the things that went on would be even shocking today. So from drugs and sex to underage prostitution, gangsters and murders, here are some of the most scandalous aspects of this decadent decade. And I'm just going to walk through a couple of these, and you can, again, look at this at at your leisure. Cocaine was all the rage, though other drugs were legal and helped fuel the decade-long party. Prostitution was deregulated. Tens of thousands of women sold their bodies during the heady days of the Weimar Republic. Prostitution was like a candy shop. Whatever you wanted, you could find it on the streets of Berlin and in the city's cabaret bars. Desperate men also turned to prostitution. And Berlin even became a tourism hotspot for Europe's homosexual gender, gentlemen. Androgyny was all the rage as young people defined the, the gender norms and enjoyed shocking older conservatives through their dress and behavior. By the way, there are photographs that accompany this. And I, as far as I can tell, I haven't seen anything graphic. But just understand, you see stuff that shocks you, drag queen story hour, you know, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, they had all that and more. Cabaret. Wasn't all fun and decadence, as the shockingly dark, satirical ballad of the dead soldier showed? The The men of the Weimar were wild, but the women often wilder. And Anita Berber might have been the craziest of them all, so there's some information on her. Marlene Dietrich made a name for herself as an icon of the Weimar era before she headed to Hollywood and global fame. Child prostitutes could be easily found in 1920s Berlin, so long as you knew where to look and what code words to use. And it wasn't all about the Kit Kat Club. In fact, Berlin alone had 900 nightclubs. Many of them were hot spots of jazz, drugs, and sex. Soaring demand meant that the illegal pornography industry boomed during the Weimar years with celebrity lookalikes especially popular. The public loved to read all about a good homicide case, especially if the victim was young and pretty. Behind all the decadence was organized crime, and almost all the major gangs of Berlin had the police on their payroll. Berlin's decadence became a tourist attraction. The city even promoted itself as a den of vice. Now, that's only 14 of the 17 reasons why Germany's Weimar Republic was a party lover's paradise. Here's the thing, though. We're not looking for an apples-to-apples comparison. Do we have all those things? Is our cabaret scene what's leading to the downfall of America? Here's where the dots connect. The people of Weimar Germany made a conscious decision to turn their backs on their moral foundation. Right and wrong simply ceased to be a consideration. And that was what made people more susceptible when a charismatic and captivating leader stepped forward, promising to re-lead them to the to the place of glory among the nations. But it started with them dulling their consciences. So if this sounds like I'm, you know, calling for let's reinstitute the Temperance League, I'm not. But I'm saying. Don't turn loose of your morals and expect to have a good result. Because if you're not being self-governing, you're opening yourself up to trouble.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.